Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I'm Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. We are in Ephesians 5 tonight, and Ephesians 5 is... Going to be talking about love and talk about we'll have some marriage and we will have some some good verses in the in this chapter tonight. It's not going to seem as theologically robust as chapter one and two, but it is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to it. How about you, Professor D? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, here's the thing with with all these uh, letters and chapters, they they all have theology in them. Just that some are more uh, pure, unadulterated theology, and the other ones are basically interspersed with, with more practical. And the remaining couple chapters here in Ephesians are that, more on the practical side. Nice. Applications. Agreed. And we're, we are, of course, looking forward to anyone who's had Sunday school growing up as a kid, has had the armor of God at some point. So we know that's coming up next week in chapter 6. But tonight we've got Ephesians 5, and, and I know as a husband, Ephesians 5 in some form is always on my mind every day, so we'll get there. But let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll journey forth. God, thank you for this evening. I thank you for my friend Mick, who I, I'm honored to have conversations with in, in, through your word. And we just pray, O oh Lord, that tonight would be another great opportunity for us to understand what you want us to understand, what you've given us in your word to be able to ponder and to be able to apply. And so we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to take a, a kind of a shorter walk tonight, a, a smaller, smaller like paragraph chunks. So we'll start tonight with verses one and two, and Paul begins: "Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God." So, Mick, what basic parenting dynamic does verse one picture? Basically, children take after their parents. This is a very 101 principle. This shouldn't even require any further explaining. <laughs> if you have a toddler and you say a word that shouldn't be said, and if you're me, you can guarantee that your toddler is going to repeat that to, to, to my wife. She'll hear like, where did you say that? Where did you hear that? Well, daddy said it, guaranteed. Yeah. And kids imitate mom and dad. So we need to imitate our dad. You know, that Abba Father, the Holy yep. Spirit's crying in our heart. So if there's any question at all about how you are to live your life, you need to live your life as a toddler mimicking God. It's Amen. however God's expecting you to live, you need to live. And God doesn't just make that nebulous. He gives us his word. All right, how does love look like Jesus talk? He talks about walking love in verse 2. So what's that look like? Well, Jesus-style love is sacrificial nature. What, what this means is that it is not selfish, but it is instead selfless. It is, um, is others-oriented. It, it is looking out for the well-beings of others first, but as if though you were looking out for yourself. In other words, you're treating others as yourself. Um, or as Jesus better stated, it do to others as you would want them, others to do to you. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God... Does that mean that there is an overall purpose of my life? Absolutely. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, of maybe Romans 12, to be a living, yeah. living yeah. sacrifice. There's something about the way I live that needs to be like an offering yeah. or a sacrifice. That's amazing. It is. It it's really a is. mind-blowing principle if you think about it. So you, we may have people that are listening right now that may be struggling with their purpose. 
they may look at their life and say, well, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do, or I just, I'm, I'm depressed. And well, you've got a purpose right here. Mm-hmm. You can honor God, not only imitate God, but see yourself like Christ and give yourself up for other people and see yourself as an opportunity to worship God, like a spiritual act of worship in Romans yeah. 12 again. Yeah. You can offer yourself to God as a sacrifice, but you're offering as a metaphor. You're offering the way you live your life and your attitude. And wow, for a couple of verses, you, you, I could just imagine the sermons that could come from just those two verses. But Paul has, well, he's going to get a little bit harsher here. So mm-hmm. the first two verses are nice. How about three to five? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he says, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. Yeah. He, he changed gears yep. right away. Or maybe not. Maybe he's telling us, hey, you need to live this way, and living this way means you don't go, okay, maybe maybe, he, maybe there's a better point here. I don't know. What sin issues did Paul bring up here in these verses, Mick? Interestingly, uh, this list of sins, which I believe are more of a sample list and not an exhaustive one, they they illustrate a contrast to the basically to the sacrificial love talked about in the earlier verses. Sacrificial Christ-like love is sacrificial because what? It is concerned with others. Mm. Where the sample sins in this list are what? They're all motivated motivated by, by selfishness at, at the expense of others. You see, there's a difference there. Uh, make no mistake of it. Sexual immorality, impurity, sexual sins, they hurt others and even oneself. And similarly, covetousness, where another word, you know, depending on the translation you look, could be either greed, and I would even put it in envy in there also hurt other people's and also they, they also hurt us too in the long run wow it almost sounds like make that the first couple of verses love looks like you're you're mm-hmm. you're serving yeah you're giving of yourself yeah and these i like you i like how you put them they're kind of a sample sins but every one of those is some form of taking yeah and, and you know going on to the speech sins of verse four it comes down to this uh a that that kind of talk is destructive and it never helps anyone mm. And B, perhaps even worse yet, you know, I like to think of it this way. Everybody's a cup, and, and, and every cup eventually gets bumped and spills. What it contains, that's what reveals the content of your heart. Nice. Or as Jesus put it, out of the abundance of the heart, what? Speaks the mouth. You see, we're all going to get bumped at some point. We're all going to say something. Mm-hmm. What's going to come out? And I think along those lines, Mick, is our next question. He speaks of, of, of coveting. Mm-hmm. And then he calls it idolatry. Yeah. So how is coveting a form of idolatry? Well, when it comes down to it, coveting is anything that we want more more than God. And in a word, I that that's idolatry too. Uh, the thing thing with coveting is that we generally want the wrong thing the wrong way, and we'll go to the wrong lengths to get it. Wow. Can you say that again? We we generally want the wrong thing the wrong way, and we'll generally go through the wrong lengths to get it. Boy, write that down. That's great. That that that's a. That describes it right there. Well done. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, if you're like me, and and I'm, I, I speak for Professor D as well. There's in some form we've all coveted, and mm-hmm. we all we all look at life, and it's it's the one of the the one of the Ten Commandments that you can't prove in a court of law. You, it's it's 
residing in your heart, but but Jesus, of course, knew the heart, and God mm. knows our hearts, and we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's that coveting is that idolatry. Wow. Mm. So. This sounds like a pretty serious moment here. So how serious were these Ephesians to take these matters? I think uh, all of us as believers, just like the Ephesians, we need reminders and incentives to, to live in step with the Spirit. If we're all honest, it, it, it's very easy to lose sight of who we are and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, we need to remember who we belong to first and foremost, who we are worshiping, and what we stand to lose. And, and I believe that this reward that he's that this is reward-wise that he's talking about here, the inheritance, not necessarily salvation. Um, why? I'll go back to Ephesians 1. God already knows who's going to be saved. So it's not a question, you know, that there's anybody. And for why For why I, I don't believe it's salvation, I just don't believe that, that salvation can be lost. And heck, I'll even go to Ephesians 2, 3, and 4 for why salvation can't be lost. I mean, just pick, pick, pick any of the, those verses. It, it's all forming that argument that God chose you. It has nothing to do with our choosing. You know, all we do is really respond to God's choice. Wow. So I, I believe the inheritance in, in this particular context is 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 uh, the rewards that, that Paul talks about very often when he uses inheritance. Right. Oh, this is good stuff. Yeah. So we're going into six to ten next, and you know, just something that popped into my mind is that there's a. Our our text begins with a therefore, and I, I know I know make you love you love these transitions here. So what would be the therefore? So, and when Paul wrote this, he didn't give you know big numbers and small numbers. So yeah, he's just writing writing a paragraph. So and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is the end of chapter four. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as beloved yeah. children. So then yeah. you're part of God's family because you've been forgiven by God. Yeah. So your now whole life is now imitating God. There's a way you are to imitate God by imitating Christ. And uh, which, by the way, that's if you're going to walk in love as Christ, so that, that means that Christ is God. If, in case anyone's new to that, mm -hmm. new to that program. But now you are you are the way you are to live, and no way you're not to live. That's just putting that in the immediate context here. Uh, all right, so 6 to 10. Okay, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. All right, so... In verse 6, Mick, uh, he talked about don't be deceived. What deception, especially consider, considering the, the context here of what you ought to be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, what deception might have been going on here? Yeah, what, what, I, think, uh, what I think Paul's getting at here is that there is such a thing as so-called believers who are, who are characterized by sins that are not even criminal Christians. Mm. And so what, he refers to them, and this is where you know, you know identity is always a big thing. When they're not Christians at all or carnal Christians, he's going to call them by, you know, he refers to the children of God as, as, you know, with God, imitate your father who is God. Now he's talking about them as sons of disobedience, which means that they are not God's sons in, yeah. in, in keeping with, with what, what's going on in verse 1. Uh, this is the messed up thing about carnal Christians, though. 
um, that while we know for we do, we may not know for certain the difference between an unsaved person and a carnal Christian, uh, God knows who belongs to Him and who doesn't. Right. And as people who, who you know, we can't read other people's hearts per se. We we can get a good sense for them. We we are still told to make judgment calls based on on a person's witness mm. and, and to watch out. You know, and if a person's not acting like a Christian, let's pretend that they are a carnal Christian. We're better off kind of pretending that they're not. So if I understand what you're saying, make it sounds like if if if, if Paul's going to tell us here, be imitators of God as beloved children. Mm-hmm. And if you decide to live a different way mm-hmm. and think you're okay mm-hmm. and that you're doing what's all right or God doesn't care, you're deceiving yourself. Yeah. And that this is not the way you're supposed to live. Yeah. You're supposed to live the way that God expects you to live. Yeah. And if you're living otherwise and you think you're okay, mm-hmm. that you got another thing coming. He's, right. not, he's now, as you said, you're, you're, you're acting like a son of disobedience, not the toddler mimicking yeah. dad. It's a different, a different son there. Yeah. You're, you're either the toddler mimicking dad. Yeah. Or you're being a son of, of, well, mimicking somebody else. Right. I mean, you really think about it, yeah. a son of disobedience. And you kind of answer the next question, what's going to face people who, who have these things in their life? And and sons of disobedience get wrath. That's that verse. Yeah. And you, I mean, you, to you, quote Johnny Cash, you know, God's going to cut them down. Yeah. You know, uh, his wrath, his judgment's coming. It's going to come, come upon them. And, and because he, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't want us to lose our rewards, he's warning us, hey, don't get mixed up with them. Don't don't get now. Obviously, this doesn't mean that we we don't interact with them at all. It just means don't don't go into whatever they're into. Mm. You know that means that we don't indulge in their sin lifestyle. Not not to to witness to them. Obviously, we need to to interact with them. We on the contrary, they need people like us to go towards them. Right in that sense. But the idea is going to to them. We have to be careful not to become them or be like them. And that that's kind of a tricky thing, but you know, God says it can be done. It can be done. And He gives them a perspective. What's the perspective He gives them in verse eight, Mick? I think, think the two key things are that uh, a that that was our past tense. That's who we used to be. We're not that anymore. Which is what darkness. Yeah, we were in in the darkness, sons of disobedience. You know, so therefore you're going to be in darkness. And B, we we have a new identity once again. That positional term in the Lord, hmm. we are united with Jesus now. So last week we looked at taking off and putting on, mm-hmm. and so now it's a you were now you were in darkness, but now you're in light. Yeah. So now be light. Yeah. Don't be darkness anymore. Exactly. Wow. And Jesus said, "Be the salt and light of the world." So in verse nine, then make how does one walk in that? Because he says here in verse yeah. nine, "Walk in the light." Well, for starters, we we have to be God's kids in the first place. Mm. Um, it, it's it's first a, a, a thing of our identity. We have to be in Christ first and foremost. We walk in the light, which is the same as keeping in step with the Spirit. When we stay connected, when we stay focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The, 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 the picture that always comes to mind is, I always think of Peter walking on, on water with Jesus. As long as Peter is focused on Jesus, he's walking. It's when he doesn't focus on Jesus where he starts sinking. And, and that's us spiritually every day. Nice. So verse 10 gives us the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal of all this? Well, it all comes down to the glory of God. Uh, what, what brings him the greatest pleasure? Knowledge, getting to know him through, through scripture is key here too, though. Uh, this also ties with us maturing in him. Yeah, I think of, was it John Piper talked about, it, what was his term, Christian hedonism? 
And mm-hmm. it talks about you know, normal hedonism is living for the most possible pleasure for yourself. Mm-hmm. And Christian hedonism would be getting the most pleasure in the life that gives God the most possible glory. Mm-hmm. And, that okay. ple- and, that, and that pleases me the most uh. because it, it, I'm really living a life that pleases God the most. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm, I'm seeing that here. Try to discern what's pleasing. So if you're going to be pondering the great mysteries of life, you should be pondering what's going to make God happy. Yeah. And I mean, kids do this with their parents yeah. all the time when, when they're trying to you get something. Well, if I clean, if I clean my room, is mommy going to be happy with me or not? Am I going to be able to get to play on my tablet or something? And they, they think that way. Well, not too long ago, it was Mother's Day. And that's exactly what we had to try to figure out. What do we get mom? <laughs> what do we get mom? What do we get mom? What does she like? And that, that takes work. Yeah. And that takes getting to know her. So, yeah. Right. There's not, there's nothing worse than when you, when you, you work really hard to try to figure out what to get your wife for Christmas and then she'll, she'll have a bitter moment. It's like, it's like, you don't know me. I, I, I don't know what this is. Every once in a while she opens things up and she says, wow, you really know me. And yeah, yeah it's like, okay, well, I guess I don't, don't know you as well as I thought. I thought you wanted that. All right. So we continue on to 11 to 14 and we're just kind of moving right along here. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to think of thing the things they do in, in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, oh, and he has quotations here. Awake, O oh sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Regarding light and darkness and exposing and secret, what is his big point here? I think the big point that he's making is that God is associated with light, knowledge, and truth, and just staying within the context. Borrowing even from the picture of, of sin and Eden, what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? They hid. They lied. Mm-hmm. They tried to keep God in the dark about what had happened. They, they tried to hide their sin from God. Uh, they were no longer open and honest and transparent with God. Wow. You know, and this is the thing, that sin leads to shame and guilt, and we want no one to know about it. And, and it's really a sad state of being, thinking about uh, the fruit that I so long, so coveted, so craved. Now I ate it, now i got to hide the fact that I did that. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of sucks. What blows my mind is verse 14 is, from, from a basic biological standpoint, if you really think about how you were able to see and if I if I understand this correctly, is you're not really seeing the object; you're seeing mm-hmm. the light that bounces off the mm-hmm. object, yeah. and that comes to you, and your eyes take in that light, which is why you can only see if there's light. Yeah. If there's darkness, you can't see. So right. really, you're not really seeing the object; you're seeing the light that reflects off of it and goes and goes into your eyes. So, even though he's it's metaphorical here, for anything that becomes visible is light. From a physical standpoint, that's mind blowing how he could come up with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, he's saying it might as well be. <laughs> it might as well be. Yeah. And so, this is now something that is hidden and secret is becoming visible. Yeah. It's like you're shining the light into a dark room, and the cockroaches kind of skitter away. You're revealing what's really there, yep. and that's how we come into the light, walking in the light. So now, anything that becomes light is visible. Wow. And he, I had to look this up because I thought. A lot of times where, where the, the New Testament will quote the Old Testament, and I, and I don't know where the reference is, so i got to look in the notes. Some of our Bibles, if you look down in the, in the margins or down in the footnote area, it'll tell you where it's being quoted. And there was no quotation here. No. So this might be a hymn. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was kind of getting at. Or go, go a, a well-known quote. Paul sometimes drops quotes like, hey, you heard yeah. it said this. Uh, so, well, whatever it is, 
regarding this, what did Paul expect them to do regarding this hymn or quote or something? Well, it's essentially the gospel. Repent. Confess your sins to God. Don't hide them. And, and let Jesus' light come, up, come upon you. Well, while I believe this is more about conversion, the truth is that repentance is a lifestyle of the Christian actively joining God in, in killing sin in one's life. We join God in killing sin in our lives. That's hmm. what we do. Wow. We get, to, we get to work with that. Hmm. I remember, oh gosh, it was my freshman year of college, and I, I had a roommate, and every once in a while, I, 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 that's when the, the band I liked the most was called DC Talk back then, and they had just done kind of like a rock album. They, they had been more rap, but then they came out with rock, and I, just, I played that album. I think it was the Jesus Freak album. And they had a song on there about, I want to be in the light as you are in the light. And the cool thing about it was, I would just play that on my computer and just jam it. And everyone took turns playing songs or whatnot. So we lived in kind of this suite on campus. And one of the cool things was, one of my roommates really liked the song. And the guy was essentially a pagan. And he really liked the song. And so that song would come on and he he really liked the idea of I want to be in the light as you are in the light and I want to shine like the stars in the heavens and kind of how the song goes. And the song is essentially coming from Ephesians 5. Yeah. And this guy who didn't really know Jesus really liked that idea and he wanted, he said, will you play that one again? The rest of them I don't care about, but I like that one. I've just never forgotten that. And this is something that there's something about this that even to... Someone who doesn't know Jesus, there's there's something beautiful about just being able to live yeah. outwardly and not have to hide everything, and and that's how we are to be as Christians. So what what an image we're given there. So fifteen to twenty one, we can keep soldiering forth here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, um, he kind of, the way I was looking at this, Mick, this kind of looks like there's this great kind of either or. Yeah. There's the godly life and the ungodly life. Yeah. And he's giving kind of just these these couplets or pairs of don't do this, but do this. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at the godly life. So looking at these six verses here, what does the godly life look like? Well, in one sense, the godly life is a disciplined one. That said, uh, if, if you look at the terms that Paul uses, look carefully how you live. Mm. Live wisely. Make the best use of time. Understand or learn. Be led, filled by the Spirit. Mm. Speak truth, life, encouraging things. Give thanks. Humbly yield to one another. To be clear, while, while we're not saved by doing any of these things, uh, we do them, do them, we still must. How's that for a, a little Yoda moment? <laughs> um, you know, and going back to Ephesians 2.10, this ties really well with Ephesians 2.10. This is what God saved us for. And that was, you're not saved by works, but you are. You, you God know, has prepared works in advance. Yes. Yeah, God, you are God's masterpieces or workmanship, mm. whatever translation you list, you know, created in Christ Jesus, and again, in Christ, to do these good things, mm. these good disciplines. 
Yeah, I, it's, I, I, it, it's a way of life that that comes. This is what God created yeah. us for. And I think Paul would agree with you, maybe yeah. with, with 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 verse one. So uh, if you're already if you're if you're one of God's dearly loved children, if you're the toddler, mm-hmm. you're already part of the family. Mm-hmm. But now that you're part of the family, mimic dad. Yeah. And so this is how you mimic dad. Yeah. And this is furthermore, it's like the, do these things and yeah. the, the, the the discipline life. I love how you put that. Discipline summarizes this, I think, really well. And you know, buying back the time or redeeming the time mm-hmm. and as making the best of the opportunity. Yeah. There's so much about our life right now that is just wasted. And, yeah. and and to be able to be disciplined. Yeah, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about this in terms of money, but we really don't talk about it nearly enough when it comes to time. Mm. And and you realize all this time that you have, if you were to take a similar stock or inventory of it, you're blowing a lot of it. And that, that was really convicting to me because I, I, I've done a lot of binge watching, mm. you know. And the thing is that it's not villainized enough in church and, and, and we indulge in it. But there there are so many other things that we we can be doing with that time better. Right. If you if you talk to a, a retirement professional, they always say things like, the goal is for your money to outlive you yeah. rather than you outlive your money. Yeah. And I think that's exactly backwards. But here, with time, yeah. it's like your time, you, you will... You, you can't outlive it. It's like you only have so much and we want to be disciplined with our finances, but you know what? Be disciplined with the time. The time is what you have least of. You know, when I was a kid, um, my, my pastor was the radio personality for Moody Bible Institute in Spanish. Mm. His name was Andres Panasuk. Then after he left our church, he went on to, to work with Larry, Larry Burkett's uh, ministry. And one of the things that I always remember that he said was... And that, that was a money ministry, right? Yeah, Larry that was, that was a fi- Christian financial ministry, yeah. Uh, and one of the things I always remember is he said was, you know, money you can always make up in life. Mm. But time, once you've lost it, you've lost it. There's nothing you can do to ever replenish time. So in essence, time is even more important than money. Wow. Yeah, there's, there, and there, may, there may be some listeners that are, they come from very traditional, fundamental backgrounds and you tithe everything. But do, do you tithe at the hours of your day? You you may tithe your paycheck, but you yeah. got twenty four hours a day. Are you are you giving God two point four hours a day? Yeah. You probably aren't. Yeah. But as much as you give Him ten percent of your of your money, and really the time is. <laughs> and I mean, you know, and I don't want to prescribe a time of time that people need to spend reading the Bible. Right. Right. Need to be praying, but let's be brutally honest with ourselves. Are we doing it enough? And I'm not even going to give you that number. Mm. Are we doing it enough? Your your conscience and you and the Holy Spirit, you work that out. Right. With the Holy Spirit taking lead on that, mind you. And it should be a big conviction. I, I can't speak about the Android world, but I know on the iPhone, it gives you a usage number. Mm. Like it tells you, yeah, you were on, uh, usually it's, they do it on Sundays, but it'll, it'll give you a little bloop. It'll, it'll give you this little notation saying, yeah, you average eight hours a day on mm. your phone or something. And wow. that's got to be convicting. And I, I know there's a lot of things on our phone that wasn't all pleasure stuff. It could right. be Bible. I mean, there could be other things on your phone. But yeah, it's pretty convicting to look at the number and realize, yeah. oh yeah, a, a lot of this time is given to this electronic leash that yeah. I have in my... All right, so that's the God that you, you handle that well with discipline, Mick. So what would, in these verses, same, we're still in 15 to 21 yeah. here, what would the ungodly life so look like? So the ungodly life, uh, by contrast, is unwise. It, it's foolish, uh, obviously undisciplined. Uh, foolish for not knowing or caring about God and His matters. It's controlled by... By by addictions or, or or substances like alcohol, but really it it goes even beyond alcohol. Anything that just being intemperate in in any sense, anything that, that that where you're just not balanced about how you go and letting appetites control you, basically indulging in destructive behaviors. Hmm. 
Mm. Not necessarily even bad things, mind you, but just the the, the destructive excesses of, of everything. You know. Wow. Now, pe- some people look at verses nineteen to twenty-one, and they they they, they appear kind of comical. Because I'm just gonna church church people are just walking around just quoting hymns and songs to each other all day long and and it sounds kind of silly although I was part of a geeky group of guys and we could probably quote Star Wars to each other all day long and just pepper our conversation with that but the question I've got Professor D is he talks about don't be drunk don't be filled with wine instead be filled with the Spirit mm-hmm. so how would the filling of the Spirit affect the way they interacted with each other because they look like they're interacting yeah. with each other here in 19 to 21. So, yeah, it's set as the opposite of being drunk on wine. And strictly speaking, even when you're drunk on wine, wine really doesn't control you. What it does is it desensitizes your better judgment, mm. uh, your rightful inhibitions. It, 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 it hampers, it ruins your self-control. Uh, in doing so, wine opens you to be controlled by your appetites. Um, filled with the spirit, the parallel phrase and the, and the polar opposite of, to, to being drunk, um, but but where where wine uh, works against self control when we are filled with the spirit, which is essentially being led with the spirit and, and not a second entering of the spirit as, as a lot of people sometimes teach it. Mm. Remember, Paul said there's only one baptism. Just That's a right. couple paragraphs earlier, right. so he empowers us to be. So the idea is that the Holy Spirit, when when he's talking about him filling us, and again contrasting it with the idea of being drunk by wine, is he empowers us to be self controlled. Mm. The spirit helps us to keep God as the focus and object of our of our worship. Mm-hmm. And rightly so. And he helps us keep gratitude in the forefront. Because it's very easy. That's, that's where, you know, to what you were just mentioning. You know, keep sing, speaking hymns and, and, and these kinds of songs to each other. Because, you know, they're kind of clever ways, mnemonic devices to help remember Christian truth. You know? And you gotta remember, these guys, they didn't, they didn't walk around right. with scrolls that they could take home to memorize. I mean, right. I'm not sure how the situation was exactly, but I'm sure that there were very few scrolls around and they didn't really, not everybody was literate. And, you know, so they, this is one of the ways you do it. You, you memorize a song, you get a good idea in there. Right. Uh, the, the Spirit live, gives us the humility that we need to carry out Christian living. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have coffee with one of my friends every week and he, he was complaining about life and just going on and on about how how, how people who don't care about God, seem to get off scot-free, and, and how the people who do care about God, you know, seem to be really getting their, their tail handed to them, and he was just... Is that he, buddy Asaph? <laughs> he was bemoaning it, and I just said, hey, that sounds like Psalm 73, brother. Yeah. You know, and so that's the right away, it's just my opening line was just tossing a psalm at him. Oh, he, knew, he knew exactly what I was talking about, and that's exactly it. Now, I don't know if they were just walking around quoting psalms to each other, but if it's making music in the Lord, melody in the Lord with your heart, there might be a metaphor there. It's like, hey, your interaction with other people, you should be, that should be just as good as if you're reading scripture to each other. Yeah. Is that you need to be stimulating each other to good things, to be good imitators, yeah. to, to be doing the, the godly stuff, not the ungodly stuff. Right. I mean, there's something about our interactions with each other that should have the same quality as if I was just reading you I mean, scripture. I remember growing up, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice right there, quoting scripture. Get yeah. the clap. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Sorry if that came out loud. No, that was, that was, that was good. All right. <laughs> so that, that now we get to the point where some of you are waiting patiently in this Ephesians 1 because you can't wait for us to get to verse 22. Well, now we're finally at verse 22. Some of you women are, are waiting for how are we going to handle uh, the women and the, the wives and the husbands coming up here next. And as you'll notice, as... 
Uh, in chapter 6, it continues with children and then, then talks about slaves or servants. So he's going to be talking about the family unit. So he starts with the wives and husbands, the two most important parts mm-hmm. of the Roman family. And then he continues next week. All right, we will continue next week. So we have here 22 to 24. And we're going to, these are just, these verses are just for the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So let's let's take this, let's go back a verse. Because yeah. verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So how is verse 22 different than verse 21? I am so glad you asked that. <laughs> Uh, you know, when we were doing this, I was wondering if this was going to come up on the conversation. You know, we worked on this uh, separately, and then we get together for this. So I, when I saw that this was the question on the docket, I was so glad. I think verse 21 is so badly misunderstood because it's, it is it is taken out of context. The point of submitting that is introduced in verse 21 is that humility is a hallmark of the Spirit-filled life. That's what it is. That, that it is it, what, what, it, what this means is that regardless of who you are in any given relation, no one is, is superior or inferior to anyone. And in verse 22 onward, Paul explains how that looks in particular arenas. But the, mm-hmm. the main the emphasis, I think, of that is nobody is superior to anybody. There's no second-class Christians, no third-class Christians. Everybody is equal-dignity Christian. And, and this makes sense. Let's bring in Gentiles and Jews, for that matter. He would say something similar along those lines, you know? They, there, there is no inferiority between Christians. Now I'm going to show you how it looks in a practical relationship sense. Right. No inferior, inferiority here, but at no the same time, there are designated roles yeah. that God has given. Yep. And for any wife out there who is saying, well, I, I've got, don't you know the kind of husband I've been given? Yeah. Well, number one... Um, you, you, there's no excuse not to love him because yeah. even if your husband is so bad that you would consider him your enemy, well, what do the gospel yeah. say about your enemies? You yeah. gotta love him. And so, but here it is: you have the perspective of in, in, in your submission. It's like who you're really submitting to. Yes. It's like as at some point, yes, you, as a Christian wife, you honor ultimately yeah. Jesus by how you submit to the husband that He's given you. Yeah. And. Yeah, so that's really, sorry, I kind of answer the next question to illustrate the wife's role. She's really ultimately submitting to Christ. Yeah. Uh, so, so make, let me just ask this. Why are these verses confrontational? And, and there's, there's the verses about the wives here, 22 to 24. The reason they're, they're confrontational, um, there, there's several reasons for it. First of all, it, it's the mistaken notion that submission, which is humility in action, is weakness or inferiority. I think that's the biggest controversy about this topic of submission hmm. is that it is somehow uh, inferiority and, and weakness. You know, um, biblically speaking, and this is what we're talking about here, this is the Bible. Biblically speaking, let the Bible speak for itself. That, that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus himself submits himself to God the Father, yet he is in no way inferior to God the Father. He constantly says the Father and I are one. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians and actually wrote this down. 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Unity is not possible 
uh, um, function is not possible without submission. It, it's, an, it's a necessary component, roles, as you, as, as the way you worded it nicely earlier. And sadly, and, and, this, and, sadly, and this goes even in Christian families, submission has been, has been used, misused to, to gain leverage over other people. Right. And unfortunately, women have been its victims throughout history. The problem is not submission itself, though. It's it's the it's it's the misunderstanding and the misapplications of it. Uh, to the question, should these verses be controversial? The answer is no. They should not be controversial. <laughs> they should not be. They should not be. What they need to be is understood correctly and then right. exercised correctly as well. Right. We we really don't have the time to get into it too much. This would be like a marriage detail. conference. Yeah, but but what we need to know and what, that women and mind you, not all women are wives. We're created equal, mm. equally in God's image as man. Equal in dignity. However, in creation order, and God chose to create man first and then woman, he, he had the power to create both of them at once. That was God's business, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And, but there, the reason he does this is, again, God does everything with a point. And we may not necessarily see it clearly always, but he wanted to create an order. Notice, he created an order, a sequence, but not of superiority and inferiority. Genesis one twenty seven says that God created mankind. It says man, but... In that particular sense, he means mankind, because then later he explains that male and female with equal dignity. And according to Genesis 2, verses 20 to 23, woman was supposed to, was complementary in function to the man. Again, different in function, but not worth, not in dignity. The word helper in verse 20, because people will, will take offense even to that, is used of God himself later in scripture. Yeah. So it's like, no, you can't, you can't bemoan the word helper there. Helper is not a put down, and, and, and if anything, helper is kind of like you know putting it on, yeah. on a certain parallel with God. I, and, I forget and, the psalm. It's like God, God is your helper. Yeah, it's like and that's the same like, word. After sin, man failed to uphold the worth of woman. That that's a sin problem. He didn't lead, did he? No, no. Yet if she look, didn't follow. She didn't right. follow, but he did not lead. Oh, he did so, lead. So he's the one that gets the sin placed on him. Right. Yet if you look at the Bible narrative carefully, and, and you don't try to force twenty first century understandings of things into it. You'll notice that the Bible has always protected and, and elevated a woman to her proper place at man's side, not under his feet. Mm. Um, equality, and I know this is kind of rambling on, but mind you, this is still the shortened version, it, it is, is dignity mm. does not mean equality in every sense. Clearly, God created man and woman to be different. Uh, not unlike God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are distinct from each other. Like the members of the Godhead, man and woman are equal in dignity, but not roles and functions. And let's be brutally honest. Generally speaking, men and women bring different things to the family dynamic. Physically, man will always outperform woman. That's not misogynistic. That's not sexist. And, and I'm not remembering these stats. I remember we used this when it talked about women being the weaker vessel in Peter. But uh, the, the, the st I was looking at the marathon stats, and, and I shared this a while back, but at least hundreds of, of, of male th marathon men finished across the finish line before the first female marathoner does. Mm -hmm. Generally, men finish anywhere from two hours, two minutes, to two hours and 20-something before the first woman, I, I don't remember if she first showed in, in two hours and 20. So that tells you something. Again, and I'm, and this does not mean that a man is better. It just means that a man is better at this particular function, just like women are better in those particular functions. And I, and I cannot say this enough, but men are not better than women. But there are those things that we're better equipped for, and there are things that women are better equipped for. Uh, this is not about a power struggle. And bottom line, 
God has given us roles mm. not to compete with each other, but right. to complement each other. He right. made us complementary, not equal in every sense. I don't believe in the egalitarian view that a woman are equal to men in every sense. Uh, this is this is this is biblically this is this is incorrect biblically, and it's incorrect scientifically. And sadly, most of feminism, I'm sorry to say. And this is where, if, if you identify yourself as a Christian feminist, you have to really examine your position. Because most feminism is really guided by Marxist conflict theory ideology. Hmm. And rather than giving women a voice and holding men account, accountable when they're abusive, what feminism is about is about leveraging power in, anti, in anti-Christian ways. Right. Men putting women down is wrong, but so is women putting men down. And that's, not, and, and that's what, what I see feminism doing. Uh, and the danger with feminism is that it essentially is saying God is wrong, and that the Bible is not the ultimate authority. I mean, if you just... I, I know it went long there, but it's like, man, just, there's no getting around well, it. I, I appreciate your, your wisdom there. I mean, if you, if you just take these verses from a logical standpoint, you would ask this question, should the church always submit to Jesus? Is there ever a scenario where the church would not submit to Jesus? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and this is not my analogy, it's Paul's analogy mm-hmm. here. So, well, of course, the church must submit to Jesus. Well, as a wife, your role is to follow yeah. the, 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 lead, the headship of your husband, just like, uh, just like the church follows the headship of Christ. And, and let's, let's even change it around a little bit. Should G- Jesus ever yield to us? Well, it, absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. But, but the, the, where, I, where, where my mind kind of went to is, for, for, our, our, for the wives listening right now, understand that the most difficult night of submission in human history was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm, yeah. Where Jesus was sweating like drops of blood. Yeah. Where he was wrestling with the very idea that he didn't, he wasn't gleefully skipping towards the cross. No. We get the idea he didn't want to go. Yeah. And he was praying, God, if there's any, Father, if there's any other way, I mean, any other way, but then he landed the plane with submission. Yeah. But thy will be done. Yeah. I mean, it's, to take this cup from me, but I'll drink it and I'll drink the cup. I mean, mm-hmm. there is, so from you as a wife who's struggling with submission, just understand that the one you're, you're ultimately submitting to Jesus is your ultimate model yeah. of submission. And so you get to be like Jesus. I mean, yeah. there is nothing, I mean, we're going to get to the men here being like Jesus, but you also get to be like Jesus, yeah. who is the ultimate example of, 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 of one who submitted. And because of that submission, we are saved. Yeah. It's like the very basis of our forgiveness, the blood shed on the cross, that, yes, all because Jesus submitted. And so it's just, uh, just, wow. I mean, yeah. that right there. So we got the husbands now. And the husbands are to 25 to 27. And I, I broke this up here. 28 to 30 is also husband. He's going to give two metaphors yeah. here. We'll tackle the first metaphor first. 25 yeah. to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what is the illustration Paul uses for the husband? What does love look like here? Jesus is always the ultimate example. So husband loving their wives like Jesus loves the church (laughs) <laughs> Talk about a tall order. Uh, mm. To whom much has been given, much will be expected. Think about this. A man's role is to love and protect his wife. That means that there should be no room for putting her down. Imagine if, if all of us as husbands actually treated our wives this way. I mean, that's basically what Jesus is doing. 
He's 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 helping his bride. He's you know he's not putting her down. He's he's actually trying to bring her up because she's down. Mm. Nice. So we have here and love. Okay, so how do verses twenty six and twenty seven illustrate a marriage? Yeah, and verses twenty six and twenty seven tell us what Jesus did for the church out of love. So this sets up what Paul will explain really in verses twenty eight and thirty. But bottom line. Jesus doesn't put the church down. He helps her where she needs it. And in this case, it's you know forgiveness of sin, restoration, and cleansing, and all, mm. all that stuff that, that, that was mentioned earlier. Nice. So 28 to 30, so Paul's second metaphor mm. here. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are all members of his body. Mm-hmm. So, how does Paul's second metaphor direct husbands? Uh, yeah, in, in the same way, after explaining how Jesus meets the church's need, he essentially explains how the golden rule is, is, to, is first lived out in the confines of marriage. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do the golden rule with anybody else if you're not doing it in marriage. And I like the fact that he brings in the body. We take care of ourselves physically. We're going to have to take care of our wives. And again, that kind of really goes back to the golden rule principle. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, My living out that golden rule must first and foremost be towards my wife before anyone else. Mm. How does verse 30 give perspective? Christ is the model. And and that's really where it comes down to. And and we we take care of our missus as Christ takes care of the church. Mm. Whatever we, we imagine Jesus doing with the church... We do that version of it with our wives. Wow. You know, you you see Jesus calling us dummies. Never put down your wife. Mm. You know? I love it. I love it. And and we had back in chapter, was it chapter 3, Paul had a a mystery Mm -hmm. in Ephesians. And that that original mystery was Gentiles and, and, and Jews coming together and God's plan of salvation, this unfolding and that mysterious way that was being revealed. Yeah. Well, now he gives us a new mystery. Yeah. And so this is now verses 31 to 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So how does, here's your therefore again. How does the therefore transition from the previous section to the main point of verse 31? I think that this illustration highlights the point of this letter, to be honest. Uh, Diversity is coming together under Christ as one unit mm. to the glory of God. It, it's, it's a lesson that God has been teaching us since, since the first human relationship, husband and wife. Mm. And it's the pattern of every other relationship afterwards. And it's, a, and it's basically the... The painting or, or the uh, the foreshadowing of Christ with the church. And so we're not surprised with the, about this mystery because Jesus has been talking about he mm-hmm. would give these he would give these parables about a bridegroom. Yeah. And he saw himself as a bridegroom. Yeah. And so the bridegroom has a bride. Yeah. And so that so we're 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 looking at like who is the bride and we're, we're trying to understand and we understand in the book of revelation and it's, it's, we, we understand this yeah. bride concept further, but yeah, if, if Paul is nailing it down here is that Jesus is 
the bridegroom and it's like he has a bride yeah. so the church and so now he t- he tastes like that that's it's mysterious how that could be how that could be a one flesh thing it's it, not even a flesh no, it's a theme that's played out in the old testament oftentimes you look at the story of ruth with the redeeming kinsmen you know yeah um you look at um oh my god why am i drawing the story of hosea of god you know with gomer yeah gomer, yeah you know hosea fixing the, the gomer message which actually is probably more representative of us when you think about it you know and even song of songs that deals with you know that kind of love you know so how does paul land the plane here so um love is the bind in, in all relationships humility and submission well, well, they grow out of love. Unity, it, it, it grows out of love. It, it's cool to know here is something uh, modern psychology has, has recently caught on to, and yet the Bible has been saying it all along. Women want love, men want respect. Mm. You know, they're shocked about, wow, that is such a profound new insight. Well, yeah, you know, did you read Ephesians? It's like it's right there. 2,000 years ago, Ephesians, yeah, you know, Ephesians like, 5.33. You're like, well, yeah, what's, what's the matter, you know? So... So we have we talked about a lot tonight. What are your closing thoughts, Mick? You know, at the heart of, of Christian living, it's all about becoming like Jesus. I hang with Jesus to become like Jesus. Hmm. I, I want to know Jesus to become like Jesus. Because, you know, it talks about, about getting knowledge. Well, the point of getting knowledge is not so that you can win a trivial pursuit or jeopardy. It's so that you can become like Jesus. Right. You know, I, I'm a child of God. Let me see what, what big brother Jesus is like. Um Lord, help me to be like Jesus in everything I think, say, and do, and even, even rewire my feelings. Mm. Love it. Yeah, for, for me, I, 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 I kind of hinted at this at the beginning. Ephesians 5.25 is, is one of my verses that is, it directs yeah. my day. Um, that is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I what I what I tell men, I tell husbands, I said, you know, we, we hinted at this earlier a key difference between love and lust yeah. is lust takes yeah. and love serves. Yeah. And so when I'm journeying with a guy or a husband who's really struggling in his marriage, I, I go right here and I say, there's three S words that, that really define what love is in a marriage. It's selfless, sacrificial, service. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're doing L, if, if those three words and go back to DC Talk, they used to say it had a song called Love is a Verb and Love is a Verb. Love, yeah. only, love is only a noun when it's like, you know, I don't know, just puppy when, love or something. Or you know, when, when it, God is love. Yeah, it's like real. But, you know, love is, is a selfless thing. It's a mm-hmm. sacrificial thing. It's a servant thing. And for our, for the wives out there, so women are wives. Or wives are, their role is to follow and they're to follow a husband who leads by sacrificing himself for his wife. What a great image. Yeah. If you need another image here, let's go to Paul's mystery. Wives, be like the ultimate wife, the church, who, who submits to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Husbands, be like the ultimate groom, Jesus. Yeah. Give yourself up for your wife. Yeah. That would be, if that's the example Paul's giving us, then play that example in your marriage. This has been Masterclass Theology from Ephesians chapter 5. What a great time tonight. I'm Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. Have a great night and God bless. Good night. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode. And I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.